Welcome back to The Red Carpet, a podcast where we look at how well or how terribly our favorite books have been adapted to the big screen. I'm Mad. And I'm Cass. And we're so excited you've tuned in. So today is a different kind of episode, but it's a super important one that we hope you will understand the change of schedule for. Yes, definitely. So this episode is something that was really important to us as just like people living on in this country and like caring about other people. Yeah, as humans. Yes, as humans. We were so lucky to have on this episode Genesee Florisantos and Rachel Cambry from the HarperCollins Union to hear, yes, and to hear about their experiences uh, being on strike for now 60 days as of this Mm -hmm. recording and how they got into publishing. And they are simply two of the most wonderful people that we've ever had the pleasure of talking to. Mm -hmm. And first and foremost, I want to let you all know This is a long episode. It's longer than a lot of our usual episodes, but this is so, so, so important, especially Mm -hmm. as most of our listeners, all of our listeners are book lovers. (laughs) You're going to want to listen to this. It is so important. And what they're doing is just such important work for um, the publishing industry. And I mean, I'm proud of them. I just talked to them and I think they're amazing. And you're going to want to hear their stories. Yeah. And I think building off of that it's not just so important for the publishing industry but just honestly this country in this world what kind of people do we want to be and what kind of what are we standing for and what genesee and rachel talk to us about is just so inspiring and just it's heartbreaking that they are the ones who are having to stand up and do this but i yeah i encourage you to listen Absolutely. So please, please, please stick it out for the whole episode. You you really don't want to miss any of this. They are incredible. And this is a really great and eye-opening conversation. And I'm really glad that we got to talk to them about this. Yeah. So without further ado, please enjoy. So we are here with Genesee Flores Santos and Rachel Cambry. They are both at HarperCollins and they are currently striking as part of the HarperCollins Union. So Rachel and Genesee, thanks so much for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having us. (laughs) Of course. This is a book to screen podcast, so we would love to start off getting to know you a little bit and getting to know what is your favorite book to screen adaptation? Genesee, how about we start with you? I know this is like a funny one, I guess, but I, I love even in all its flaws, the Piercy Jackson book to screen adaptation. Yeah. It's so wrong. (laughs) I was going to say, as long as we can recognize that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's so wrong and it's so bad that it's good. I, Logan Lerman, you know, (laughs) big shout out to him. You know, I feel like he did a phenomenal job with our little boy, Piercy. And (laughs) I loved those books and I still go on like Disney Plus and watch the movie and have a good time, even though I know very dearly in my heart that this is just simply we know not the what truth. happened <laughs> <laughs> yeah. are you pumped for the new show I am pumped for the new show I'm I'm glad they're going with like a younger cast to like kind of mm-hmm. see the characters grow up since it's such like a long 
mm-hmm. book series. Yeah. So I really like that it'll add like a definitely a little pizzazz to be like, <laughs> look at them growing up. Like also like I feel like it'll like really touch on like, you know, you're like reading the book one and you're like, oh wow, he's like a kid. Yeah. <laughs> but then like now in like visually it's like, oh, he's like a little boy. He's like a like small. He's a child. And he's so and he's cute. Doing all of this. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Ugh. He's just, I just just want to go pinch his cheeks. He's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. That was actually, I think our first review episode that we did was the person. Yeah. <laughs> person. And it was that. the first time we ever read the books. So mm-hmm. I had only seen the movie and then I read the book and I was like, what movie did I watch? <laughs> so that's awesome. I love that. Well, Rachel, feel, what about you? Well, I was going to say, I feel like I'm very on man out here because I have neither seen the movie or read any of the books. Oh, man. No, I'm just <laughs> throwing throughout the rally. But, but, <laughs> and it's okay. But what I was going to say was that I was so excited by the recent casting news for that series, specifically because they cast one of my favorite actors of all time, Toby Stevens, as mm-hmm. Poseidon. Yes. And for those who know, Toby Stevens is most, I think, his best role and the one that he got zero like awards for anything was Black Sails, where he plays Captain Flint, who is like the most you know the the evil god of the sea essentially and like and and the show is amazing that show is amazing and when i saw that casting announcement i was like i don't need to know anything else i am there like i'm reading the books i am watching (laughs) i will watch this movie and i'll text genesee throughout i'm so here for it like i'm ready my favorite easy answer lord of the rings oh yeah Yeah. nice totally And not only because it's a fantastic, I think, uh, book-to-screen adaptation, but I also, like, grew up with those movies as they were coming out. Mm-hmm. Not only the movies themselves, but also, like, all of the behind-the-scenes, like, all the appendices. Like, you know, when I was in middle school, like, this was, that was what I grew up with. And it it absolutely inspired my love of filmmaking, not just like movies themselves, right? Like I know so much about filmmaking because of those behind the scenes materials mm-hmm. across the three films. So for so many reasons, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, you, you can't go wrong with that answer, can you? <laughs> right. I will say too, it's nice to be now, how you know, 20 plus years since they came out. I, I was the kid who got bullied in school for loving Lord of the Rings, like, in, like, publicly. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it's a classic. I'm like, where were you in 2000? Right. <laughs> yes. Like, the dog bully in my class was literally, like, dropping my MP3 player on the table and being like, who listens to this shit? Like, come on. Like, no. get me. <laughs> they were wrong. They were so wrong. So they wrong. really were. <laughs> wow. I know. And I, okay. So what do you think of the Rings of Power show? Have you watched that? Oh, that is a whole, y'all, that is a whole other podcast. I'm not, (laughs) I love it. For the same reason I love the Hobbit films, my friend Jeffrey and I will both tell you we are both Hobbit trilogy apologists for some reasons. Same kind of with Rings of Power. Like I see the flaws, I recognize them and I will, I can list a lot of them. At the end of the day, it's more Middle Earth by people who love Middle Earth. And like, that's, yeah. that's what I care about. Totally. So. 
I love that. I know. I feel like you can't really claim to love something if you can't be critical about it. You have to be able to recognize the flaws because I think that makes you love it even more in those Mm -hmm. situations. Absolutely. And I feel like that's led to a lot of our on the podcast, just in the moment discussions of things, even things we love being critical of them and digging (laughs) deeper into it. And you get so much more meaning out of things when you do that. Absolutely. And it's the same with books, right? As any studies major will tell you, like it is the same with close reading a book and talking about it with people and saying, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I can see why you really like that part, but I really had this issue with it or it hit me different, like whatever it is. But that's one of the reasons I, I know I was so excited to come on this podcast is because I think that there is so much familiarity between books and films regardless of the you know the interpretation of literally like book to screen it's like just in the storytelling itself and in what goes into making a book and what goes into making a film and how people talk about these things I think there's just so much crossover that it always makes for really really fun discussions strikes strikes notwithstanding yeah (laughs) (laughs) totally that's a perfect segue you talking about books you know books must be published you both work mm-hmm. in the industry we're getting there <laughs> so could you tell us both about how you each got into the publishing industry so I don't know what did you study in school why did you want to work in this industry what led you to where you are today this is always like for me, this is a funny question because I feel like this is definitely like an interview question. Like you're at a job interview. Like, why are you yeah. interviewing publishing? Why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But for me, so I went to college and I graduated in the cursed year of 2020. Um, <laughs> Good on um, you. I did, I did my very last quarter like virtually. And after that, like I had initially wanted to go to school here, here in the city but I couldn't afford to go to school here in the city. And mm-hmm. so I, I'm from California. So I went to um, UCLA, I went to California school and I saved all of my little pennies. And then I moved to the city in September of 2020 with no job. Oh, wow. um, I moved here with no job. I don't have any family out here. And all I knew was that I wanted to go into publishing and I wanted to make books like, I, I majored in English. I was like, I, I've loved books my whole life. Like, I just, I want a little piece, a little, a little smidge of being able to be like, I work with books. Yeah. And so I, because it was just something that I loved and something that I was passionate about. Like, I, I I'm the oldest of like all my cousins and like mm-hmm. my siblings. And I was like, I want to show them that like, you can work with your dreams. Oh. And so... And so I working at an indie publisher and it was an it was an art book publisher and I it was terrible. Um <laughs> and boss was full to me and I was like, oh my god, are the rumors true? Is this publishing? Is this gonna be my career? What were I was like, what are my dreams for? And <laughs> And so then I came to HarperCollins, you know, like so enamored with just the concept of it, just mm-hmm. because I was like, this is a big five publisher. This is a, it's a serious publisher, quote unquote. And like, I fell in love with like just the things that I was doing. Like my manager was so kind to me. She would always patiently answer my questions. Like she was a good person. And I was like, 
you're telling me that my boss doesn't have to be like the meanest most horrible person ever this is lovely this is great like i can see i can see publishing in my future you know and then like just going on i was like ooh, can i financially be in publishing like yeah mm-hmm. what's how is this happening you know like um i don't have to pay my student loans right now so like that's tight because i saving money i guess but like ooh, this is getting a little stressful <laughs> and so you know when it came to then voting to go on strike i was like yes i was like how how can you not go on strike because yeah. i spoke about this in like other interviews but like a lot of people you know call us like brave and while i do i do see the the merit in being like you guys are so brave i also am like this isn't a matter of being brave like this is a matter of like fighting for myself fighting for my colleagues and friends to also stay in in the career of their dream it's like right being in publishing isn't you just i mean sometimes it is for like the people who are rich and you know their parents worked in publishing and their their grandparents mm-hmm. worked in publishing but for like the majority of people you know like this is this is a dream job that can very quickly become a nightmare just because of the things that you go through because old guard thinks that you have to like be broke when you start out because your parents can help you and I'm like my parents cannot help me yeah no you're like well my boss used to say these things to me so it's okay if I say these things to you and it's like right why though like why is that mm-hmm. the standard it shouldn't be yeah, the exactly. standard and so that's why that's how I got into publishing <laughs> that's why I'm on strike now yeah um and it's still it's still a dream I still have passion in my heart for books and like I always say like I was like I love books but books don't love me and that's okay because I'll keep loving them with all of all of my damn heart absolutely and I think that just speaks to because you're right it is brave but you shouldn't have to be brave to be able to live and everyone should be able to afford to live that's you don't have to be you shouldn't have to be Mm -hmm. brave about that so I totally understand what what you're saying about that and it's nice to hear, but then it's like, well, why do I have to be this way? Why do I have to act this way to get that? So, and yeah, like, yeah. So, like, I guess for more conversations about like bravery and stuff, I do recommend like the podcast, the Minorities in Publishing podcast, hosted by Jennifer Baker. She did a great interview. I was I was on there, but so was I mean, at Jordan Parrish Turner and Doris Allen other members on strike Mm -hmm. and they they also did a very lovely job to like kind of talk about that conversation of like what it means to be on strike yeah yeah definitely I'll put it in the episode notes for those of you listening right now well what about you Rachel what was your journey I often call it I took I often say that I took the scenic route into publishing and not out of choice but purely out of I had I had no choice really like Genesee, like I moved out here for college in 2009. I got a big financial aid package from the new school, and which is the only reason I was able to afford higher education, let alone moving to the city. Between that and um, money received from a wrongful death lawsuit that we settled when I was in high school. So between those factors, that's how I ended up out here. 
I almost immediately started applying for publishing internships, but I was, I'm from Southern Oregon. Like I learned a lot at my, I went, I went very lucky was, went to a very nice public school with incredible educators and teachers, which is part of why I'm so like gung ho about teachers because I had some of the best. And so I knew how to do a lot of things, but writing a cover letter wasn't really one of them. And especially not for a publisher, you know, not one to a publisher who reads thousands of the same kind of yeah. exact cover letter. <laughs> so, uh, so that was its own learning curve, as was living in the city, as was going to school in the city. But four years later, I graduated in 2013 with a bachelor's in literary studies. I focused mainly on American and medieval British lit. I've been a Beowulf nerd since I first heard about Lord of the Rings. So, you know, <laughs> took a couple of uh, uh, classes with just like a professor and another student, like an independent study. I think we did like three independent studies learning Old English. So if you ever have a copy of Beowulf flying around, like I'll show you my party trick. But uh, <laughs> but ultimately, yeah, I, I graduated in 2013 and I had yet to get I didn't have an internship yet, and I had been working through college. I worked at Sephora for a year and change. I worked at a restaurant for, like, over six months, and then I graduated, and I just, like, I had that sort of initial post-grad, you know, post-graduation sort of panic of, like, I got to get out of here, you know, and I think I think that's a normal reaction to having graduated in general, where you're just like, it's time for the new thing, and I mm-hmm. was still in New York City. And when I'd first moved out there, I was like, you know, all overall is not thinking I was going to stay here long term. It's now 14 years. So <laughs> uh, I said that before grad school, too. And <laughs> right. You're like, here I am. <laughs> so but yeah, so I just kept working. I didn't have money to leave New York, let alone really do anything else. So I stayed and I kept working and I worked in a coffee shop and I worked in luxury stationery and I worked as front of house at the public theater and slash Shakespeare in the park. I was an office assistant. I did a freelance. I ghost wrote a memoir. Like, wow. You, cool. Like in those in three over the course of three and a half years from 2013 to July of 2016, I did so many things to try to make ends meet. And it was a daily struggle. And, and I mean that in sometimes the most severe ways. Yeah. Um, I was regularly going hungry. I was regularly having to choose between transportation and food, which I couldn't make at home because I didn't have a kitchen. And I essentially lived in a slum at this point and all that that entails. Still have nightmares about cockroaches. Like it was not a humane living situation. Yeah. But I was determined and I was determined specifically to work in publishing. And part of what got me there finally was that I got a bookstore job. And in this time too, I did do one internship at Soho Press. And I went after them specifically because they paid and because they're Soho Press. And I, as an indie publisher, they are one of the best. And then I got a bookstore job at Rizzoli, which uh, had reopened near the Flatiron building. And when it reopened, there was all of these like old publishing salts coming through talking about like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. Like I used to go to the one, you know, on, I think it was on 56th street. You know, I used to go to that location all the time. It's right by the Penguin Random House office or it's by this office. And like, people are like, you know, name dropping these companies that I'm like, oh, I'm like, okay. But I didn't really have my like elbow rubbing skills really. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even 25 at this point. So I'm still very much like young and learning. Um, and, uh, but I, I stayed and I kept working at this bookstore and eventually a woman came in and she was at Viking at the time. And she offered to get coffee with me in February of 2016. And so we did that and we talked and it was an amazing conversation. And she gave me all of this information that I did not know before because it was all very like insider publishing information that no one knows unless you are inside publishing. Yeah. Or someone sees enough in you to like give you that information so you can use it. But she did that for me. And I'm eternally grateful to her. Her name is Bina Kamlani, and she was a wonderful woman. And I hope she's doing well. And she just told me, you know, I asked her, should I keep applying to internships? And she goes, you're how old? And you're working in a bookstore? No, go apply for editorial assistant jobs. Like, you're way ahead. Like, go for it. So I did. And I was applying from February, like, in earnest, at least three times a week to different places from February until May. And in that entire period, I heard nothing. Uh, until May, where I got three interviews in a week. <laughs> wow. wow. One at Penguin Ram House, one at Oxford University Press, and one at Hachette. Um, for various reasons, the first two fell through. And then the initial one that I had applied for at Hachette, I think, got, went to someone else. And of course, I'm devastated. And I'm this whole time thinking in this crisis of like, if I don't get any of these jobs that I'm getting interviewed for, I'm leaving New York. Like, I have to find a way out. Like, I can't stay in this apartment anymore. I can't live this way anymore. Like, this is not working. And then Miracle of Miracles got an email from the publisher of 12 Books. Uh, at the time, I think he was executive editor. And he he emailed me directly because HR had passed along my information to him. And, they, and he goes, I need an assistant. Are you interested? So I interviewed there. And a month later, I started at Hachette at 12 Books as the editorial assistant. Hmm. And I was there for five and a half years, and it was amazing and challenging. And I started at in July of 2016 at $33,000 a year. And a reporter was, a Vox reporter was talking to me and Genesee and a few others on the picket line today. And I said, she asked me, you know, did that number give you any pause? And I said, honestly, no, even though. Sean, my then, you know, my the who my then boss who called me to offer me the job, when he called me to offer me the job, he literally said, like, sleep on this number. Like, take a take a, you know, don't say yes right away. Like, sleep on it. Think about this number. It's not a lot of money. But at the time, I was probably honestly make taking home maybe nineteen thousand dollars a year. I was definitely at or, you know, somewhere around the federal poverty level. So 33 with healthcare, with a you know stable everything, and an office that I could stay late in, so I didn't have to be in my apartment as you know as long as possible, like done deal and right. book and yeah. an imprint that I really love with someone that I really vibed with, like amazing, like couldn't ask for better. But it was thirty three thousand dollars a year, and I very quickly realized how untenable that is even though it's finally all coming out of one salary, it's still not a livable salary. It's still not a livable wage. No. And so I was there for five and a half years. I was part of an effort to, we put together a big project, a group of junior level employees. We were brought together to, uh, with the blessing of like HR and Michael Peach to put together a project to improve the quality of life, heavy on the finger quotes, improve the quality of life working at Hachette. 
And we were tossing around ideas around the table, all 13 or so of us. And I just went, we got to convince them to pay us more because all of these projects, all of these initiatives that they, that they want to do that we're, you know, that we have ideas about, if they just paid us a livable salary, most of these things would fall into place anyways. Yeah. So that's what we did. We spent a year, including through most of COVID, putting this project together across like different subcommittees. You know, each each mini group sort of had their own responsibility. And me and my group were responsible for the numbers and the hard data. So we put together this massive project and delivered it to HR and the CEO and the EMB and everything. And we were arguing that they could raise the entry level salary to $50,000 and save money. Um, we found out specifically that they had spent $4 million on turnover in one department in one year alone at Hachette. And so we were like, and all of these people had left because they simply just had not, they had, they had asked for more money and had been refused. So they yeah. all left. It cost the company $4 million. Wow. Wow. And my, I'll never forget my colleagues were like, should we really be asking for 50? It's, it's too much. I'm like, first of all, no, <laughs> it, is not, it was not enough in 2020. And it's yeah. fr- personally speaking, I don't think it's enough now, but that's not the union's fault. That is mm-hmm. a whole other shenanigan. Yeah. yeah. But if we ask, but I said, if we ask for 50, they'll give us 45. Right. They're not going to give us that. Exactly. If we ask for 45, they're going to give us 42, pat mm-hmm. us on the head and say, good job. And then they're never going to let us. <laughs> Way to be brave. <laughs> exactly. Like they're never going to let any, sure, sure enough. This program that the the cross level leadership committee that Hachette had launched for us for our group, they're never doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, we, but we were successful. Mm. But we were successful in our mission. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And then the Woody Allen walkout happened. Wow! So yep. like a few months later, after the salaries were raised, so that was interesting. And then two years later. I left Hachette to come to HarperCollins. And this is a very long-winded story. I'm sorry. So that's okay. day one at HarperCollins. I've now been in the industry for what, five and a half, almost six years. First thing I did was join the union. Literally, like as soon as I got my computer booted up, first thing I did was I emailed the union. I was like, what do I do? What do I yeah. need to do? How do I do it? Tell me. Didn't care how much came out of my paycheck, even though I couldn't afford it. And I still really can't. I'm like, I don't care this matters more than mm-hmm. however much, you know, the $5 after taxes I would get otherwise. Like, this is more important. And that's what I did. And so I've been at HarperCollins since November of 2021. And it's weird to no- realize that I've spent, I don't know, fractions, but, you know, I've spent a good chunk of that now on strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's yeah. a really, I, I, you know, I think about it a lot and I've been thinking about a lot over the course of this strike and truly like this is over. There are so many moments, especially early in a pub in a publishing person's career, as Genesee was describing of like, is this a, is this still a dream or has yeah. this become a nightmare? And is yeah. this something to like wake myself up from and move on to something else? And even to this day, I'm like, no, the pros still outweigh the cons. Mm-hmm. And it, I have been sort of fortified through all these years of thinking of like, I am here in this place doing this work, not just for the books. And that is the most important thing. The authors, the books, those are the most important things. But also if, if it means like I'm here to fight, if I'm here to fight this fight, 
for the sake of the future of this industry so that Mm -hmm. there is still an industry to speak of in 20 years. So be it. You know, I told Genesee on the picket line today, you know, look, looked you dead in the eyes. And I was just like, you like, but truly, and I meant it earnestly then. And I mean it now, like someone like Genesee and Genesee in particular, it's like, she is the kind of person that I have been fighting for in Mm. terms of new, new hires into publishing who do not make a livable wage as a rule. And that is a rule imposed by the industry. Right. That my intention from the moment I told that group of junior employees, hey, we need to convince them to pay us more. The intention has always been to basically prevent other people having to go through what I went through Mm -hmm. at the beginning of my career. I didn't eat for the first week of my being on the job at Hachette because I had no money. I had none. Like I had less yeah. than none. And so I ate the free fruit that they offer on right. Tuesday, like grabbed a couple of extra pieces. And that's what like got me through that. And like peanut butter got me through the week kind mm-hmm. of thing. You know, that is for those of us without, you know, family out here, for those of us who don't have, don't, who don't come from the means yeah. to, you know, just call your parents and say, Hey, can you pay my rent this month? A lot of us do not have that option. Mm-hmm. And then doubling down of like, some of us are not partnered. Some of us need to live alone for the sake of our mental health. Right. I'm lucky to have won the New York City housing lottery. So like I have rent controlled apartment, but the rent is still almost 50% of my take home pay. Like yeah. mm-hmm. these are the, you know, and I didn't have the money to get this apartment except for that my stepmom had died in 2018. So like that life insurance payout, which was not very much, that's what paid for my getting this apartment, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the only reason I was able to escape that awful place was because of that. So it's like, and I wrote this as, you know, I'll finish by saying, like, in that project that we did for Hachette, I wrote this personal statement that uh, I eventually put on Twitter that basically said, like, all of these, all of these things that I've done to try and improve my life that all ha- like that happened in 2018 only happened because people were dying and people did die. Like my father died, my stepmom died, my dog died. Like the only reason I was able to take care of any of that business was because someone had already died, or in the case of like my grandpa's funeral, a bunch of military veterans on Twitter crowdfunded a ticket for me. Mm-hmm. And it was because of the salary that I get paid to do incredibly difficult, incredibly skilled white collar work. Yeah. And that in particular, that year was uh, like, by the end of it, I was like, this is truly unacceptable on a human level. Just not even on a business level. Like, Mm -hmm. fine, pass me over for promotion because I wasn't here for six weeks. Fine. Whatever. Yeah. But the fact, the, the realization that I was worried about being able to afford the death of my parent mm. was as radicalizing a moment as any, as any other, really, that I've experienced. Yeah. So it was like, if it means that someone like Genesee can be hired at 50000 instead of thirty-three, uh, you know, hopefully maybe be able to start building a savings right off the bat or paying off student loans right off the bat and yeah. not live in some kind of, you know, inhospitable place with bad people, then that's worth everything to me. Mm-hmm. And on top Absolutely. of and that, and that's, that's to say nothing of the books themselves, which is mm-hmm. in its own right, so rewarding. I just wish that that was my, that that could be my entire focus. Right. Mm-hmm. Instead of having yeah. to fight 
for just basic quality of life like for yeah. for boys yeah yeah and I think the part that really astounds me and the part that I think people often don't consider when they hear about these things is it's not just like living in the moment and being able to afford current moment. If you're not making enough money to live, you're not able to save anything. So it's it's not just impacting you in this moment of your current salary, your current job. It's impacting you in the long run for your entire life. Absolutely. Yeah. What's what's the line of like being poor is expensive? Yeah. Where if you can't afford to get that dental surgery when you need it, that's going mm -hmm. to turn to jaw surgery in five years and you really can't afford that like that's that's what we're talking about like when i've i have looked heads of hr i have looked publishers i have looked executives in the eye and said we are not asking i've literally said i don't know what number goes through your minds when we ask for a livable entry cell entry level salary we're not asking for the moon here we're not asking for you know a hundred thousand dollars even right out the gate right which that, you know, a lot of folks in tech and, you know, law and all these other places will pay and freely and gladly do. But I don't want to work in those places. I And I don't want to be astronomically, you know, super wealthy right out the gate. Like, it, like, no one needs it, first of all. But second of all, it's like, we just want to be able literally to pay rent, have money left over for groceries, yeah. have money over that after that for bills and maybe have money left over after that to pay student loans and to pay for just living our lives you know mm -hmm. especially as editors we are supposed to be you know engaged with the culture and like going out and talking to people and doing things and being ex like exposing ourselves to things that requires money yeah it, yeah it requires like you know and all these things that you know, as Genesee was saying, like the old guard of publishing, they love to talk about the old parties. They love to talk about all these sexy, fun things that used to be that people used to do in publishing, but those just don't happen anymore, you know, because the recession happened and then the wallets got tighter and then people stopped doing them. Right. And that used to be part of the excuse of why the salaries were so low. It's like, yeah, the salaries are so low, but you get to do this, 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 and this. Like, either for free or someone invites you or whatever it is. Never mind that so many of those little perks were really dependent upon sort of who you were. Yeah. And I mean mm -hmm. that in a very literal sense of like what your, like what your color was, what yeah. your religion was, what your sex was like, or your gender expression. If you were one of the boys or if you were one of the girls, like, yeah, yeah you, like you got invited to those parties, yeah. but when, even when I started in publishing, like once it became clear that I could not financially afford to hang out with people the way that they were hanging out, I didn't get asked out to, to like publishing stuff. It just was like, I'm on an island, like I'm over here. And so I feel keenly that sense of estrangement from community based purely on the fact that like, you're poor, like right. you can't fit with us. Too bad. <laughs> And that's yeah. just that's just publishing's mentality, I think, in a nutshell. And it's something yeah. that I'm vehemently against as yeah. a way of, especially as a way of doing business. I think it's just a really dumb way of doing business. Yeah. That and now I'll get off my soapbox and shut up. Hey, that's why you're here. We are. Yeah, we brought you here central. to talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think too, you know, when when you are making that little, 
almost all of your mental effort is focused on that and how you are going to survive that. So exactly. how much of that is even left to do the job you are being paid minimally yeah. to do? <laughs> I knew the number off the top of my head. And granted, this was a number from circa 2020. But we literally pulled up the number. And this was not specific to publishing. This was just like a general number on a national scale of like literally how much money is wasted because year after year because of people it's essentially time wasting in in the sense that it's the amount of time workers spend per day on average worrying about their finances yeah and how much of that time is spent at like is being lost at work and how much does that yeah. then cost millions of dollars yeah millions of and this is again a national issue. Yeah, that that yeah. is how it affects people. And and again, like yeah, like you were saying, but this is very much this has a ripple effect mm-hmm. uh, for your health and for your your work and for your mm-hmm. job and for everything in your life. This like money impacts it. And so long as that is the case, we have to fight for people to be able to afford to live. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Kind of, that was kind of heavy and it's that's why we want to talk. Like we want to talk about it though, Yeah. but not to totally change direction, but just listening to both of you talking, you're both so passionate about this work and we would really love to know what's your favorite part about working in publishing. So for me, it's like definitely building relationships with people. Like I've been in my whole life that I've been an extrovert and the only thing was I was I was an extrovert who liked books. I went to a STEM high school. Like everyone liked science and, you know, they wanted to be like an engineer. And I was like, I was like young. So I was like, well, I don't really know what I want to do, but like the thought of going into like STEM makes me want to like puke. <laughs> and so, I mean, shout out to them and all the great work they're doing. But at the same time, I was like, that's simply not me. Mm-mm. And like, mm-hmm growing up you know like I try to be like mom I read this book and she'd be like okay okay she's like this is real life though not everything's about books and I'm like but why can't it be right. it could and be then, you know, <laughs> but it could be and or even like I remember sitting down and watching like Twilight with my mom being like giving a play-by-play like this is it what it happened like no and her being like just watch the movie she was like you don't have to do I'm like no mom like and so that's the kind of like thing I was like raised with and you know like just there wasn't a lot of people to build community on from books and like working in publishing I have that opportunity to build like really strong relationships based on like books because I feel like that's the thing like there's a lot of community within reading like for example, like think libraries, like libraries are great community centers where you can like get to know others. And also like they host like, like very unique and like wonderful programming. And like all throughout the country, we see a lot of those funding being cut and it's like heartbreaking, mm-hmm. you know? And so like, for me, that's just what, that's what I like about publishing. The fact that I get to build relationships on something that I love. And then, you know, there's like a lot of great people here like I I work primarily on adult but like talking to like folks who work in children they're the sweetest folks out there I'm like wow like you're telling me 
that you looked at a manuscript and it was like 30 words long and you just were like having a good time ah! with the book. <laughs> it like, had pictures. I was like, that's, <laughs> yeah, I was like, that's lovely. Like, and they're just like great to talk to. And like, then, you know, I get to talk to other people who like work on like books that are vastly different than the ones that I work on. And I'm like, that's super cool like thank you for telling me these things like I don't read that because that's like not my taste but like interesting I love I would love to know why that's yours though like why do you like this you know there's lots of those conversations that happen I really appreciate it just being able to be like walk into walk onto the picket line and be like what's everyone reading <laughs> what are we reading today book club yeah. <laughs> it's one of my favorite parts truly what is let's see so so one of the one of my favorite aspects of this work and like genesee like the thought of working in places like stem or in banking or in real estate i'm like gag me <laughs> like i'm truly <laughs> like no and also just like my brain works a certain way and it doesn't necessarily suit especially like a really old school like nine to five like mm-hmm. my brain just shrivels at the thought and so one of the things that just makes publishing such a good fit for me as like as a worker nothing else is that especially and in my capacity as an editor is that there's a lot of flexibility around like or more so it's just like part of the job is going out and talking to people it's going out and meeting new people it's going out as Janice was saying it's like it's building relationships with people you never would have known otherwise that is absolutely one of the best parts another my really favorite part and this is very much comes from my being a nonfiction editor is that I like I truly just love learning I love learning new things and I I don't know if that's a Gemini thing I don't know if that's a neurodivergence thing I don't know what it is but I just love learning new new bits of information about different things all the time and nonfiction does that for me and the fact that I am learning this information about everything from like deep sea floor mapping to being the first deafblind graduate of Harvard Law School, to being, you know, Tammy Duckworth. (laughs) Like, you know, I've worked (laughs) on so many incredible nonfiction titles that have taught me so many new things about so many different things. And they're all written by people, for the most part, they're all written by people themselves who know these things and who know their subject inside and out and have a lot to say about it and have opinions about it but also want help writing it and want that want that work with an editor to really turn it into something more. And so coupling all those things together, it makes for this truly, I think, unique and like truly spectacular. Like when it, when it really works, it works, it works mm-hmm. and it makes, there's no other feeling like it just as there's no other feeling when you lose a book, you know, you lose an auction that you for a book that you really, really, really wanted. Mm-hmm. Or the boss says that you can't pursue a book that you really, really wanted to that you want to acquire. You know, nothing hurts more, but nothing is also as but also nothing's as good as, you know, getting the book mm-hmm. and meeting with that agent and having that author call. And it's just I can't think of another like I just I have yet to think of another job that would satisfy all of those desires of mine for being a worker mm-hmm. and also creating a product at the end of it that will outlast us yeah um yeah. for all intents and purposes you know I was talking to this reporter earlier of like the feeling of going into a bookstore 
Mm. and seeing, you know, opening up a book by an author that you know, and your name is in the acknowledgements. They're saying nice things about, like, the first time I did that in my hometown bookstore, like, forget it. Like, what what could be better, truly? Yeah. Um, I'm, like, getting chills. (laughs) (laughs) There is so much good, Mm -hmm. like, in this job. And that's not just me. And that's not just me speaking in terms of editorial. Like Genesee was saying, like, we have so many wonderful colleagues in children's publishing. Like, I was, I've been talking to them of like, what's keeping you in the industry? Like, what's, Mm -hmm. you know, what's doing? It's like, it is the people and it is the books. Mm -hmm. And the authors are essentially both of those things. So, you know, what's not to love other than the fact that we cannot afford to do it. Mm -hmm. And, and not only that, but then to be told, suck it up. Right. That I think is the worst part is is that mentality that genesee was describing of these old of the old guard of publishing saying i had it worse deal with it you know ask your parents from ask your parents for help well don't you have a savings account well don't you have a guarantor well don't you no like what part of poor yeah. don't you understand and our you know the definition shifts with every you know extra five grand that they tack onto the salary you know maybe every couple of years but again, $50,000 is not enough. Like literally there are facts and figures that tell pe- that can tell you how much a person, a single person without kids in New York City needs to be making to have a decent life, mm-hmm. you know, where they're not spending their working hours stressing out about their finances. Yeah. I think right now it's somewhere around 58.5 after mm-hmm. taxes. The numbers are there and the money is there. Yeah. What what we lack are is empathy at yeah, the yeah. levels where it matters most yeah. and that if anything is what I bridle so hard against is that is that yeah the fact that we are sitting here talking to two <laughs> humans you know two people yeah. who just want to do like you just want to do your dream job like yeah that's Literally, what that's, that's awesome. what makes me I get so so mad just thinking about that like how yeah. can you not see that these are real people yeah on that actually on that note can I ask sort of what your both of your sort of reactions have been to sort of the strike but also maybe even leading up to it of just like you know what you what you heard about the state of the industry and things like that yeah um so for me it's Uh, So I'm a former teacher. So like hearing about striking has always been something that like when I hear about it, I'm like, okay, I'm going to dig into this. Like what's going on? I want to know about it um, and understand it. I never had to go on strike as a teacher with my unions when I was teaching, but it's something that I've always been like intrigued, not intrigued by because that sounds like kind of gross. Like, oh, I'm like examining this from the outside, but just like hearing all these stories over and over about people just asking for like almost less than the bare minimum sometimes and I'm like why do people not understand it and I think following the strike I remember we recorded an episode for our podcast with one of our other friends on oh gosh early November it was right around when the strike had started Mm -hmm. and we were like oh man I I had just started an arc from HarperCollins on NetGalley and I was like well I feel really like I need to think about this and like am I gonna 
write this review, which I ended up posting on NetGalley. I was like, I'm not going to review this until HarperCollins gets it together. <laughs> so just like hearing about it. And then that episode didn't come out until January 4th. And we were like, oh my God, they're still mm. on strike like this. Yeah. And it's just, it makes me so mad for you guys because everything you're saying is things that I thought while I was teaching. And like, I, like, you can't afford a lot of jobs in America that like are really important. And it's stressful and it's hard. And I can totally relate to that. So I come at it from a place of like, this is ridiculous. And then you have like CEOs, the heads of these companies and organizations and, it's like, when are they going to take the cut so that their employees can live? Like, yeah. and especially the thing that really got me, which we had put kind of at the end of this, our questions and stuff was that like two days ago, Brian Murray saying, we're going to reduce 5% of the workforce. I'm like, dude, what is your problem? Like, when are you going to get it through your head? And it's just, it's so frustrating. And I can't even put it into words a lot of the time, but it just makes me so angry. And that's why we were like, when that episode came out that we had recorded in November, we were like, we need to do something about this. We need to figure it out. So that's why we reached out. We're like, we got to talk to somebody because this is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, that is, is very classic, like union busting. Yeah. Like tactics, like he's trying to essentially make us feel bad and be like, look what you're doing. Like the company is not making any money. Oh my, like boo, com- boo Harper Collins, please right. be sad for us. And it's like, that's not, that's not, not true. The yeah. company is making money. We've published yeah. several large authors who were very profitable for the company. Like mm-hmm. they, they are lying. They've been reporting record profits year after year. And they're like, well, we're not seeing those those that this year. And I'm like, okay, but what about like the last couple years? Like, and also, have they not been seeing those numbers or just because I like I, you know, granted, I'm not in their tax bracket, but I I can imagine that a lot of those numbers have just ended up in their bank accounts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that is and that has that was what was explained to me way back in the day when I asked my manager at the time, he told me he told he'd given me the news of my raise and it was from like 33 to I think 35, five, you know, if that. And I just remember looking at him with tears in my eyes because I, unfortunately for me and for everyone else, I cannot separate feelings from, you know, from no. work because yeah. I'm human. I was saying, and I don't think you should. Right? And I don't think it's exactly. it, at the core of it, it is human. You are yeah. dealing with humans in every step of that. Exactly. And when right. you spend that much of your life in somewhere that isn't your home with your family and your loved ones, yeah, like I'm going to bring my full self to this. Mm-hmm. And I did. And I asked him, how do they rationalize this? How do yeah. they, ra- how do they sleep at night, essentially? Because I can't feed myself with this. I can't see my family with this. I can't pay rent with this. Mm-hmm. And he went on to essentially explain trickle down economics to me, because that is how this how that is how this industry has been built. Mm-hmm. Is it's Reaganomics one hundred and one? Is yeah. that it all? Is is that it all stops at the top? A little bit gets through to the middle, yeah, and then the rest is kind of like a crapshoot. Hope for the best, yeah. 
that's again it's just like that is reprehensible to me mm-hmm. that is it's also just bad business it's you know we we've mm-hmm. proven i think a thousand times over that that function that that form of economics doesn't work on a national level Mm-mm. and it really doesn't work on a business level mm-hmm. because yeah it's like then you have the poor of your company getting progressively more pissed off and younger yeah yep and who all talk to each other and i had that revelation around the time of like getting ready to leave hachette getting ready to come to harper collins of like well their first mistake was hiring a bunch of millennials and gen z and expecting us to not talk to each other right and to not commit like publishing people have been commiserating with each other for the entire time like Mm -hmm. this as long as the industry has existed right what they are not used to that old guard that Genesee was talking about, what they're not used to is people talking to each other out loud Mm -hmm. in public Mm -hmm. about it on public forums about it. Yeah. You know, posting their essentially posting their resignation letters on Twitter or someone like Jen Baker, for example, that Genesee mentioned earlier, posting, you know, a whole thread on Twitter talking about how she had been unceremoniously let go and then her former boss was on vacation within the hour. Wow. After she had been locked out after, what, 15 minutes or so? I don't know how long. But it was basically she mm-hmm. was told and then it was all gone. Mm-hmm. And then her yeah. boss was gone on vacation, like, yeah. immediately. You know, our CEO is the former rear commodore of a yacht club. Like, <laughs> when we say these people are out of touch, yeah. yeah, obviously these people have their own lives and their own whatever you know all of us are worlds in and, in and of ourselves mm-hmm. but if you have that level of wealth and you have that level of access and privilege and you sit there and say but it stops here and you're just lucky to get what you get and that's the way it's always been mm-hmm. that's not leadership mm-hmm. that's not good business it's not it's not yeah. good it's not being a good human Mm-mm. and I kind of got verklempt. I was giving a speech yesterday on the on at the rally outside the office yesterday, and I mentioned the fact that like you can't take it with you. Like nope. my mom, my mom was the breadwinner of our family, and she died, and yeah. she didn't take. I have so much of her stuff, you know. Like yeah. you literally cannot take it with you, even if you have kids. That is ne- that is no guarantee. Mm-hmm. And I come, I have that experience is so that was like the defining moment of my young life. I was four years old when my mother died Mm -hmm. and it informs everything about my life and my outlook on how people should treat each other because Mm -hmm. it is so, it all ends the same way. But in the meantime, we have so many choices to make about what we do, how we do it and Mm -hmm. how we treat other people. Mm -hmm. And for them to just sit there and be, well, this is the way it's always been or as we also heard at the beginning of the strike, well, if they just gave it 10 years, you know, they stand to make some money. It's like, who? I know someone on the picket line who's been in this company and this company for 20 years, she does not make a fraction of a fraction of what her manager makes or what my manager, like 20 years, 20 years. She doesn't make even make a hundred thousand dollars. And to me, that's just, Again, it's bad business and it's bad leadership and mm-hmm. it's bad. It's just bad people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> period. Yeah. And I, I think it also goes back to what you were saying about 
doing this for future people in this industry and future generations. And when you were mentioning, you know, it's millennials and Gen Z that they're hiring. And in my head, I was like, yeah, and it's those generations who've been shit on by these older generations being like, you messed up. And it's like, no, you screwed this up for all of us. You are the one who have messed this up. And now we are having to sweep up behind you. So exactly. And to be told also, and there's so much of this also comes down to like, if they could just, if especially like at the middle, you know, management level, Mm -hmm. if there were acknowledgement of how hard it is and how unnecessarily difficult it is that would really go a long way yeah. and to and for there to be acknowledgement of like the state of the world is so beyond effed you know yeah. keep it pg <laughs> like yeah like if you are like at my last job i would text my boss and be like i'm having a bad brain day i yeah. need to just lay in bed and not think about anything because the state of the world is so upsetting yeah like i started working in publishing months before trump was elected mm-hmm. like and I work in politi- a lot of political nonfiction. Yeah. Like, it was rough. And, but he held space for me for that. Yeah. And that was incredible and mm-hmm. so important to then be met with, well, just don't read the headlines because they're written in a way that they're supposed to stress you out. So just ignore them. I'm like, that is, that is like, poor people don't have the option. Right. Like, yeah. people, you know, my friends who are married to their partners don't have the option of just, you know, ignoring these things. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a woman with a reproductive system. I cannot ignore the overturning of Roe v. Wade. No. Yeah. Like, right. I'm a Jewish person. I can't over, like, I just, like, no. Just keep listing them. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like, ad nauseum. Yeah. But, it, it, yeah. but that was that moment of just, like, not only is that there's this, a lot of people who are deeply out of touch, mm-hmm. they also don't care. Yeah. And I'm just like, okay, I'll care for you. <laughs> right. And so yeah. will all of us on the picket line, because that's what we're, that's, I think, really what our, what we're doing is yeah. we're doing the lion's share of the caring that needs to happen for this industry to survive and to be better, really. Yeah. yeah. Well, you've talked a lot about, you know, some of the things that go on on the picket line. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that's like, what the atmosphere is like, what you're doing out there every day? Yeah. So the picket line is definitely difficult. So as of today, February 1st on this recording, 2023, we are on day 60 of the strike. That's over 80, like regular schmegular days, but that Mm -hmm. is 60 working days. And I mean, morale is strong because we're, and we today is also our first day of mediation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like it was 20 degrees at eight o'clock in the morning. This yeah. morning. There was flurries of snow. Mm-hmm. And then I took my, my hot hands as I prepare to stand outside for the next six hours. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I can just, I can already hear someone being like, well, it was cold for them too, going to the office. Like, yeah, and then they went inside. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they right. took off their coat and yeah. they enjoyed the the heating system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas for me, like, I I enjoy being on. This is like, I guess, odd. I both enjoy it and I dislike it. I enjoy it because I've gotten to meet all these people. Like, I've gotten to to know my colleagues in ways that I simply would not have. Yeah, if I 
was still working like if I was not on strike if the strike mm-hmm. didn't happen and so like I feel like you know they were definitely trying to just start us out they'd be like oh they just get tired of being on strike yeah. like it'll it'll blow over yeah and then essentially like we all started talking to each other yeah we started building community within one another started finding mm-hmm. comfort with one another because this was this is a very unique experience that like we have all now shared with each other mm-hmm. yeah over the course of three months yeah right. like it what they thought has essentially backfired because now it's like mm-hmm. No, because now I know all these people because yeah. we, we're all being like, wait, I make this much. How much do you make? Like, yes, yes just point blank. Exactly. And like, it's rough, like physically and like mentally, you know, like physically, my hips hurt. Yeah. Oh my God. Physically, my, my shoulders so hurt. Yeah. Like, I I try and eat food and I'm like, wow, what do I want to do right now? Eat food or have my fingers go numb? Yeah. yeah what kind of coat should I wear today and you know like like is it gonna rain today should I like wear boots or should I wear my like comfy shoes Mm -hmm. it's like well too bad it's gonna rain so you have to wear your boots yeah um or just like things like that that I like are a daily consideration for me it's like "Mm -hmm." you know like I mean like donations have been solid and everything but like there's some days I'm like are we having lunch today? Because yeah. if we don't have lunch on the line, I'm not going to eat lunch. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it is, and yeah. you know, like it's. I'll also, point out that Genesee it's... is our best is our best person on the megaphone or on the bullhorn. <laughs> so on top of mm-hmm. everything else that we are all doing, you know, some of us have taken on extra responsibilities, and Genesee has done so with fervor. And she is by far like our favorite person on the bullhorn, leading chants, screaming herself hoarse multiple times a week, even, yeah. especially like when the strike started and at every rally. Like mm-hmm. it's I, I'm in awe of her, truly. Yeah, yeah that's and, <laughs> and that's the thing. It's right. People who have not done it don't even consider that. Right. It's just like, oh, they don't want to work. Yeah. Exactly. Or they're like, not oh, doing them, anything. This is them throwing a fit because yeah. they didn't know what they wanted. And it's like, no, it's like, I'm in physical pain and yeah. emotional pain and you know, X, Y, and Z fighting is, for again my dream. Yeah. This is a fight. This is a real yeah, fight. It is. Just because no one's walking away bloody doesn't mean we're not bleeding. Yeah. Oh. yeah right. And yeah. so and I and I have to laugh too because someone I was talking to someone earlier today on the picket line. And they made this, or maybe it was Genesis. I can't remember. My brain has been scrambled eggs lately. But like someone mentioned the fact, the hilarity of Brian Murray trying to spread this idea that like they're going to starve us out, right? As if we are not intimately familiar with yeah. how to be poor and hungry. It's like as if you haven't already day. been doing that. Exactly. And I I laughed so hard when the, when this person told me that because I was like, that's exactly it. Like. Yeah, this is, you know, oh, I didn't have lunch today. It's kind of like I haven't had lunch lots of times. <laughs> like yeah. it's going to it's going to be annoying, but like I've dealt with worse, right? Right. You know, the idea that we could be starved out because they are, you know, because they have all the money. It's like, well, they have all the money and we are still starving even right. when we are not on strike. Like right. we are we are old hat at this. They yeah. I would be amazed if they could have lasted a day, let alone 60. Yeah. 
like absolutely no way there's no No way way. as much as and you know on par that and that on par with you know i would love to see brian murray live his life on forty five thousand dollars a year let's just see let's just see how that is like how does that feel how much do you struggle yeah how much time are you spending freaking out about paying your next bill right you know all these things like try it and see what happens and see how you feel yeah that was one of the things when COVID, when the pandemic and lockdown first started, there's a community I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name, but <laughs> but I was so I just could not understand lack of empathy and humanity and yeah. caring for everyone around me. And my dad was the one who was like, unless it happens to them, no, like this this group is not going to care. Yep, and. And that's what I see. And that's what I hear you say as well. You know, Brian Murray and all of those people in the upper crust, it is not happening mm-hmm. to them. So why do they have to care about this? And that's yep. just not, it's not, not good humanity. It's yeah, not that's good not humanity. humanity. Yeah. And the as fact it, as that, it should be. as it should be. And the fact that, you know, they did not get there by themselves. No. I would put all of my meager salary on <laughs> that. That right. they did not get there. They did not pull themselves up by their bootstraps to get there. And I would say too to that point that even in those cases where that person did, you know, obviously the bootstrap theory is bunk and we know just like Reaganomics, mm-hmm. we know it's bunk. But, you know, I know that if I were 20 years into my career and I were in a more comfortable place and someone said, like, well, she didn't work for this. It's like, yes, I did. Right. Yeah. Like yeah, I've I've been and I've been nothing but vocal about how I got into this job and have stayed in this job by the skin of my teeth. Yeah. But like, yeah, certainly some of those people in those positions did the same thing. Right. And they're just not as open with their story because especially for older generations, that's just not what you do. Yeah. You kind of suffer and bear it alone in silence, which is mm-hmm. also not good. Mm-hmm. My issue with those people and specifically with those people more so than the people who already had privilege and already had wealth, you know, generation after generation. It's those people who struggled, fought their way into that place of security and comfort, and then pulled the ladder up after them. Yeah. That, that is the person that I have the most, the biggest grudge against. Yeah. And then unfortunately there, it's more than one and it's more than a dozen. It's really so much of the industry and it's a lot of people in middle management yeah. And that is what stops so many young careers in their tracks mm-hmm. and drive drives people out within the first five years. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It, I was gonna talk about like career trajectory, I guess. Because like yeah. it's always very ironic. You know, we've kind of talked about like this is the career of our dreams. I wanted to come into this industry with all of my heart, like regardless whether the everyone's always like, well, you go into this with passion, you go into this with passion. And it's like for me, sometimes I think about like the people in tech who make like hella money, hella money off their like starting salary. And I'm like, for me, like I'm like, you're were those your dreams? Yeah. Were those your dreams? Or was the dream money? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, these were my dreams. And like, I mean, if it was a tech person to go into tech if it was their dreams happy for them I'm so happy they're doing what they love you some people truly love like coding and they have joy and passion for it and I'm so happy that they get to make money in that industry yeah. but at the same time I'm like I've seen 
authors cry, cry. You're telling me in your tech job you saw someone cry because they reached their dreams of getting into like the New York Times? No. Yeah. Like, yeah. Hmm. It is it is a true privilege. What yeah. yeah. And and I think that's something that happens in a lot of a lot of different careers where people kind of dismiss it as like, well, you care about it so much. And it's like, well, caring and being passionate doesn't pay the bills, folks. Yeah. Like you can love it till the end of the day, till the end of time. Loving something is not going to magically make money appear out of thin air and be able to exactly. support that. Mm. So exactly. I mean, like we have like several, several like signs. I mean, this is like even a chant that I do, like that we say like passion doesn't pay the rent. Pay the rent like yeah. it, it's simply passion cannot pay the rent. Mm-hmm. I yeah. cannot be go up to my landlord and be like, I was really passionate. <laughs> That pay, no. can, can, I love my job. They gave us to that to that <sighs> point. They gave us once again. They gave us free a free ebook download for like the company holiday gift. A free ebook download of a book that most of the people on staff worked on and already have. You didn't and, even get to uh, choose the book. Exactly. Like you had like a choice uh. of like five or whatever. And I just remember I was trying to write my thoughts down the other night for a speech, and I was just like, "Yeah, I can't pay my rent with a free ebook." Yeah, <laughs> specific, yeah. like, no, like that's no. And there's and then there's that that gap then of like, well, don't you can't you ask this person? Can't you talk? To, I'm like, no. I'm like, no. I've got two dead moms and a dad who's out in Oregon, you know, who's doing voiceover work and like trying to get by himself, like. This is a national issue. People yeah, cannot yeah. afford to live. The fact that the mm-hmm. phrase a cost of living is even a thing, it, that's a whole, again, that's a whole yeah. other podcast. But like, <laughs> and I know, and also to like tie this back into like your guys' podcast, right? Of like, I know so much of this carries over to the film industry. I know, you know, I know I was watching the IATSE union stuff avidly when that was happening. Mm-hmm. What was that? A year or two ago. Yeah. And really rooting for them because I have friends in LA who are trying to work in film who do not have connections and who have been doing it themselves and are doing it. Mm-hmm. But the share the stories that we swap, I'm like, we literally could trade places and it would be almost yeah. identical. And is it is very much like, yeah, like we are in a very similar, if not the same boat, working in these industries, essentially legacy media industries. Mm-hmm. that love to devour t- young talent and spit it out and then use that use that leftover money to pay a pay an exec's bonus i'm like yeah. no <laughs> no no not anymore that's yeah. not gonna fly anymore mm-hmm. right and i think that's a really good segue into one of the other things we kind of wanted to talk about was the different roles or jobs of people that are on the strike and Mm -hmm. what role do they play in the publishing industry? Because I have a feeling a lot of these roles are things that keep the whole industry moving. So if you could share a little bit about that. All departments can be and are on strike with us. So like um, editors like Rachel, publicists like me, but also marketers, designers, salespeople, legal people, copywriters, production editors, like all across the company are on strike at junior levels. And so they always say a book is a is a process. That it's not just like contrary to like I guess public belief because of you know the like guarding and like gatekeeping of 
the publishing industry and what it takes to make a book you know it's not one editor being like do this Mm -hmm. you know like there was I forget which exec like not even exec I think it was like a CEO of a publishing company that was like oh a book can get by with like a good editor a publicist and a (laughs) one salesperson (laughs) that was at the that was during the PRH DOJ trial and that was you know among so many banger quotes i think it was like jonathan carp yeah i think that was john carp Mm -hmm. of just being like all you need like or oh was it john carp who also described editors as angel investors i was like are we because i don't feel particularly angelic nor do i have anything to invest like i have your money to invest like i have your pretend money to invest but like nothing to invest in myself or anyone else in this co- like in this industry. Like mm, I would rethink that one. Sir. Try again. <laughs> Try again. Mm-hmm. My favorite, my real favorite, like pull from that specifically of that trial was as 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 editors, like we have com- we have to provide com titles when we want to acquire a book. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the sort of opaque, you know, process that is publishing, you have to have com titles if you want to acquire a book. The com titles can't be more than say three years old right? Like, that's the rule. At least two of them need to be, like, in-house. It's a whole set of thing. And during this trial, I think it was Marcus Dola was asked, you know, what was a book that the company didn't pay a lot of money for, but the book made a lot of money? Like, it sold really well, and it made a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And his response was Seabiscuit, which was published in 1995. (laughs) Like... So even the book people who have risen to the top have not actually touched the bookmaking process right. in wow. so in over 20 years. And you're like, wow, bro. Seabiscuit, <laughs> that's what you're going sea with? Seabiscuit. Oh and I gosh. love that book. And I love that movie. I was going to say, Speaking I love that movie. I love minutes. that movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll like, add it to just, the list. <laughs> exactly. I'm also like a, a horse girl through and through. So like if there's a horse on screen, I'm there. In terms of the picket line, like Genesee was saying, like, we have someone of, from every department, multiple someone's from every department on strike with us. You know, we're talking about over 200 people who have been on strike now for 60 days. And this is a, also, yeah, across both children's and adult publishing. Mm-hmm. And it's honestly like the the machine that we have created as a self-contained union is incredible. Like the apparatus involved with this is beyond even my ability to comprehend. Comprehend. Mm-hmm. It's there's so many people doing so many amazing things that we don't even know about until we see it in front of us on social media, and it's you know an incredible graphic or yeah. a whole carousel of content on Instagram, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That they've like designed and copy edited, and like they recently did an entire. Jesse, do you remember what it was for? But it was like an entire tweet thread of like. This all these award winners in like YA or children. It was for the it was for the um, American Library Association awards. That's that where one. they like award like the Coretta Scott King medals and like the yeah. Yeah, medals, like things like that. And like I worked on several of those books. Yeah, yeah. and like I, we we post the union posted about those books winning those awards. Harper Collins did not. Yeah, like <laughs> and we and they designed it beautifully. The union yeah. folks who did that. Yeah, beautiful, incredible, stunning, jaw dropping. Like, you know, and so you've got everyone from like Genesee and I who are picket captains, which basically means like we are responsible for helping to bring strike stuff to the picket line and then back again to our local HQ like spot. 
talking to people on the picket line, making sure people have what they need, checks, money, food, water, etc. Yeah. A joke, a, a hug, whatever. Yeah. Um, you've got pe- you've got the social media team who are mostly all uh, people who are working remotely. Oh. And then you've got people in charge of social media. You've got people in charge of the Gmail outreach, account. outreach, mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. Like, and some of it too is just people stepping up in the moment and saying, like, hey, I know this person. Could I reach out and maybe ask them to like write about us or like have yeah. us on their podcast? Like mm-hmm. That's that's how I think Genesee and I both have had these opportunities to talk to so many people is that others have sort of done the reaching out in advance mm-hmm. and set up that moment, that connection for us to then be able to come in and say our piece. And yeah. that is that is how well that is how good of workers these people are. That's how good yeah. at their jobs these people are, right. these publicists and marketers like this is like they are doing their jobs still in a sense. Mm-hmm. They're just doing it for the union and they're doing it for the strikers. Right. And, but we like, but I think, you know, as Genesee said before, it's like, we don't even want to be doing that. We just want to be doing our jobs on the books themselves. Right. Like, we don't want to be spending our time in the cold doing all of this stuff. We want to be working right. on the books. So just let us work on the books. Right. And pay us fairly for it. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah, Totally. Okay, we have two more questions for you guys. The first is, so we know like today was the first day of mediation. Mm -hmm. And I know we talked to you a little about it. There's really no, you have no idea how long it's going to last, what the timeline for that looks like. But what do you, best case scenario, what comes out of these mediations in your guys' opinion? Like, let's go best case. A fair contract? Yeah. (laughs) That's just period yeah just yeah period. That's, we, that's, uh, yeah the hope is that, that we is get the everything only that we scenario. Have. yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the there's um, obviously that like there's obviously like some pie in the sky stuff of like would i love it if the company came and was like we heard you kind of like what happened with the woody allen memoir where it's like we heard you we paid attention and we're doing the right thing mm-hmm. i would love to see harper collins do that and say we're not just going to do 50 we're going to give you 65 or 75 mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. in you know not just come in good faith but also you know take it and double it yeah and say like mm-hmm. you know we heard you la- again acknowledgement goes so far yeah in terms of making people feel seen and heard and respected mm-hmm. and i think that would be amazing if that happened mm-hmm. as it is mm-hmm. i'm trying to keep my expectations as low as possible and so yeah, yeah. so as genesee said like mm-hmm. a fair contract is really all we can hope for and that mm-hmm. is what we are hoping for yeah right yeah and like even in the words of our our unit chair laura harshberger she said today like you know, we're all very happy for mediation, but the reality is we haven't been striking for a meeting. Yeah. yeah. We've been striking for a fair contract. Yeah. 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 Like, we are still going to hold the line. You know, like I feel like Harper comes was like, we're meeting. Right. No more strike. No, no come, more strike. Come back no in. More strike. We're meeting. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's like, no, yeah. this is not over yet. Yeah. Until we, until that document is signed yeah until we have all collectively voted to have it approved right Mm -hmm. that is when this is over and even then there's like a million other things to be done Mm -hmm. like it's not as quick as the company wants it to do because the company wants to like wash their hands and get it over with Mm -hmm. and it's like 
you're not going to wash your hands of your literal employees. Yeah. Yes. He worked there. <laughs> yeah. Which took like, him, how, how many days, Genesee, did it take for them to actually call us their employees and not auto workers? I think it was around like day 52 or three. <laughs> Goodness gracious. I think it was after the news corp, the first news corp rally. Our second one is tomorrow, the uh, February 2nd. Okay. Shout out. I mean, I think this the podcast will come out after that, but for context, so we had our first one a couple weeks ago. So I kind of, I have to imagine that that was them being like, okay, maybe they are our employees and not auto workers, which is another union busting tactic yep. that they have employed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were times. the, we were electric workers. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> like... Like, yeah, let me and it's come like come with my like socket wrench and a blue wire. Like, I know. Sure. I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't even change my own light bulbs. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't. What do you expect yeah. me to do with this? What's a breaker? <laughs> yeah. God, don't ask me. Yeah. <laughs> and, um. and I think a part of it that also gets, again, left out is the work that's done after, after the contract gets voted on and approved. And hopefully it, Hopefully you guys get something good out of this, but there's a lot of work that comes after that because now I think what they're also not seeing is that there's going to, it's going to take a lot of work to repair this relationship now Mm -hmm. because they have for the 60 days of the strike and until this gets resolved in a way that is fair to their workers is they're going to have to atone for that and be like, okay, yes, we treated you really horribly and they need to kind of sack up and figure out how are they going to move forward from this in a way that is respectful to their employees. It's not just like mediation, you come to a solution, there's a vote and it's done. This is an ongoing process that is going to take a lot of work on their part. And it should take a lot of work on their part to actually Mm -hmm. figure out a way to treat their employees like real living human beings. Agreed. Agreed. And I think especially with all the public attention now, it's like we're going to be watching and yeah. listening more carefully and paying yeah. attention to how that plays out because we're invested now. Yeah. I know I was talking to someone earlier who was like, I feel like I'm watching this like it's a football game. Like she's like, yeah. that's how close of attention I'm paying. Yeah. It's like every move is like, I need to pay attention. What I will say to your point, Madison, is that when, you know, as my dad would say, not if, but when, when we have a contract yeah, and when we are, when we have voted on it, when we've mm-hmm. ratified it and when we're back in the office is that, I, is that I would ask the general public, which has responded so enormously well and supportively to our strike is to keep some of that pressure on yeah, and yeah. basically be asking Harper Collins, like, where, yeah, where is your letter of basically like admonition just being like, yeah, we fucked up. Like, you know, granted, of course, they would never deign to say that. But like you were saying, like, what is how are they going to atone for this? Because Mm there is absolutely broken trust. There's absolutely bad feelings. People have already people have been leaving HarperCollins since the strike began who were not on strike. But because Mm of how they saw HarperCollins treating us. Yeah. Drove them to leave the company like Mm -hmm. they have they have inflicted i think in many ways in some ways irreparable damage upon their brand yeah Um, and certainly on the author level i know there's a lot of broken trust on that level and that is the most important level right according to the business you know Mm -hmm. to say nothing of how the editors feel and how everyone else and just how all the book people feel like how all of our striking workers feel about how important authors are but that's the that's the real thing. It's like though 
the people, you know, Brian Murray, you know, everyone whose decision this is to make the, to draw the strike this long, they have the, the authors to answer to on top of us. Yeah. You know, and so for the general public to keep their eye on it and to pay attention and to like kind of run it up the flagpole now and then of like, mm-hmm. yeah, where's, where are y'all at with this? Mm-hmm. That would mean a lot. It would not, it wouldn't just mean a lot. It would go a long way. Do I think. A lot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, In that vein, Rachel, you're, you're like the best at our segues here. You're doing it for <laughs> us in a way. But um, uh, in wait, that vein. God, that's, <laughs> oh, uh, that's like, it reminds me of a, I love stand-up comedy. And oh, it was from, it was a moment from Whose Line Is It Anyway? Uh, <laughs> and specifically Colin Mockery, who's like the wonderful yeah. little comedian man. He just yes. goes, you're not the only master of segues. Like, <laughs> I hear that word. I hear his voice in my head saying, yeah. oh my gosh, <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, but <laughs> our our last kind of question is, what can people really do to support the union? I mean, Madison and I are both super active on Bookstagram and like a big thing for Bookstagrammers has been we're not reviewing HarperCollins books. So like what do things like that do? What's that impact? And what other things can we do to support the union? So I think a large thing you can do to support the union is definitely donate to our hardship fund. Our hardship fund does go out to our our members on strike you know we've been out here for 60 days yes we are going through a financial hardship yeah so you know we just launched our our online forum so you can now like donate online you know because I know it was a little bit difficult especially in these days to like where is my checkbook let me go let me go write a check (laughs) I have no idea where mine is although the fan mail that came with the checks was awesome it was beautiful. It was lovely to see the the mail that did come with the checks. So and you can still write a check to our hardship fund um, out in Minnesota, and it's you can do that. And again, for any reviewers and bloggers, like just withholding your reviews because to a certain extent, the company is trying to replace union labor with bloggers. They're like, mm-hmm. instead of you know getting a blurb, what if we just get like the blogger to kind of do the marketing for us? Mm-hmm. it's like no no because the market like the marketers on strike are on strike for a reason and mm-hmm. the bloggers also recognize that reason as well yeah yeah and so withholding reviews is very important for our fight and then for any Asians out there withholding submissions to the company as a whole because like that sh- gives public and industry-wide support because they think again we're just the auto workers like yeah we don't they don't think we have this broad wide spanning support mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so if we show the company that there is broad wide spanning support it allows for us to really pull away and be like do you want this to continue you mm-hmm. are doing this to yourselves we yep. are not making the decision to let the strike go on mm-hmm. and on and on and on and on yeah so knowing like those, knowing like that. that it's hurting authors and knowing that it's like causing this damage to their brand, like yeah. that's so real. And also to to your point, Genesee, about the reviews, what I want to point out to people because I think this sometimes get lo- gets lost is that we're not asking you to not ever post the reviews. Like once there's a contract, once yeah. everything is resolved, fire away. Like, yeah, dump all it, of them. Share it, write <laughs> it, all of it. Do yeah. it all. Like. I want to encourage, I want to reassure authors that like all the things that have been withheld over this duration of the strike, 
we certainly did not anticipate it going on this long, first yeah. of all. Like, we did not go on strike being like, all right, we'll see what happens in six months. Like, no, we we fully were like, they can't possibly, right? So all of this, all the materials that have been withheld because of the strike by bookstagrammers, book talkers, reviewers, etc., by all means, like unleash hell when this is over and like <laughs> make those authors live, like make make those authors lives like they yeah. will be so happy. And so will we because we'll be back to doing our jobs and like and now so can you. Yeah, there's you know, the people holding this up are not on strike. Like they are they are in that office and they are at the News Corp office mm -hmm. and elsewhere, you know, twirling their Machiavellian mustaches and just being like, what can we possibly what else can we possibly mm -hmm. glean from these people? Yeah. And like, no, we're we're the one calling the shots here. So yeah. The reviews, the reviews can and should and will come, definitely. Yeah. So those are very much so our top we asked to just donate to us to hold reviews to hold submissions mm -hmm. because as we've learned through striking like there is collective action and if collective action can go further than just internally then in three years mm -hmm. when we come back to the table they know that we're not playing any games yeah and we will never play the games again mm -mm. well three Three years before, four years, technically, because we did do a year extension on our last contract because of the pandemic. But, you know, union, like, turnout was quite low. I think it was, like, under 20%, I believe. And currently, like, there are over 220 people on strike. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. almost the entire unit. There's about 75, I think, so, between 75 and 80% of union-eligible employees are in the union. Mm. Yeah. So if the company would like to play games, if they would like to, in three years, find out, we are more than willing to yet again walk out. Yeah. And that is a very true and very real thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. even then, even if several of us won't be there, because as, as Rachel mentioned, like, lots of people are leaving because of this mm -hmm. yeah it's still something that we can garner the new employees into mm -hmm. yeah. yeah because there is power in collective action and there is power there in getting to know your employees and like yeah. not employees colleagues mm -hmm. and i was gonna say too like those people that that those future employees genesee is describing they're watching all of this unfold yeah. on twitter and on Instagram yeah, every day, yep. right? Mm -hmm. Like those are our future colleagues. Mm -hmm. And so, and that is so exciting to me. Is yeah. to, is those people will eventually be in this industry and will come in knowing that this is possible and mm -hmm. that it was, that this fight has been fought before. Yeah. And that hopefully, of course, but that, that by the time they are in the industry, the fight is over, yeah. that we don't have mm -hmm. to keep doing this you know yeah. every three years or every every new contract mm -hmm. the hope of course is that the entire industry will be unionized by a certain point right that all those unions will be closed shops so that when those new people come in they are automatically in the union mm -hmm. you know the dues are negligible compared to the fact that their salaries are actually livable mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they do not experience micro or macro aggressions of any kind mm -hmm let alone sexism and any other kind of bigotry. Yeah. 
Yeah. They have they have the space to be human and have feelings and to be themselves in the workplace. And if that workplace also happens to be remote, that's great too. Yeah. We love that. So yeah. we want we we want a healthier, bigger, better, stronger industry mm-hmm. for all yeah. and not for some. Yeah. And I know that that's threatening to those some. Mm-hmm. And I would just ask them and encourage them to sit with that yeah. and to look in the mirror and to really think about why they feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they have and what do they stand what do they think they stand to lose by doing otherwise mm-hmm. just a question yeah I love that yeah. well thank you both so so much for coming on and chatting with us like I said I've been fired up about this I'm even more fired up about this <laughs> now after getting Absolutely. to talk to you guys <laughs> I just I yeah, I'm so thankful and I'm so thankful for you guys for standing up for this and being a voice for those future generations. So we will do whatever we can to support you guys. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for coming on and being here and having this conversation with us. And thank you so much for sharing kind of your personal stories about it. And I just have to say, I so love how passionate you are about this and what you are doing for the future of this industry, I think is absolutely incredible and i for one i'm really grateful that there are people like you two in this industry who are being a part of this mm-hmm. and taking care of our books <laughs> our our, ba- our babies <laughs> we know they're <laughs> yours too so a few things that we've you know gathered from you guys in our talk today and just other things we know that you guys have posted about if you're looking to support the union, follow them on Instagram, on Twitter as well. You guys have an account there um, oh, yeah. at HCP yeah. Union. You get daily updates. You get, you know, all of the information about what you guys are doing. You mentioned the book awards. I loved that, like, carousel. That was awesome. Mm-hmm. Like we've mentioned, keep not reviewing those HarperCollins books until a fair contract is reached, signed, put into motion. Donate to... <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Donate to that hardship fund if you are able. There's also a strike solidarity open letter that you can sign, and we will have that in a link tree in our episode description for easy access for you there. And then we've also know people have said to send an email to people team at harpercollins.com expressing your support for the union, saying you want them to win that fair contract. So there's a lot of things you can do depending on you know, financial feasibility, what you feel able to do. So please think about and consider doing one of those after listening to this conversation. Do you guys have anything final you'd like to add? All I have to say is in many of our rallies, you know, we always say when we fight, we win. And this is something we're going to win. Yeah. I have nothing better to say than that. Yeah. I think that's a perfect way to close. Absolutely. Thank you both so much. Thank you so much to everyone for listening to this episode. We are really proud of this and this interview, and we hope you will use those recommendations that we mentioned. Next episode, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming. We will be reading and watching and reviewing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Yeah, so very excited to revisit our childhood of that one. 
Um, in the meantime, while you wait for that episode, please, please, please check the episode notes on this episode to get all the HarperCollins Union information. It'll all be listed there. Um, and also, you can follow both of us on Instagram. I'm at FictionalCast. Matt is at Reading Rainbow. And we do have an email address if you would like to send us any recommendations for episodes you would want to hear, any adaptations you want to hear us cover, um, any fan casts, let us know there. And you can also, of course, follow us on our podcast Instagram at the Red Carpet Pod. And oh, I didn't even say the email. <laughs> it's everything's at the red carpet it's pod. All the there. red carpet pod at gmail.com. You can find us. You know how to find us. And I you also link it in the notes. Go to those episode notes. It's all there <laughs> for you. But thank you so much for listening. We, like Bad said, we're so, so proud of this episode. And it was something we really wanted to do and something that was really important to both of us as people. So that's all. Thank you for listening. And until next time, XOXO, Madden Cast. Bye.